If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, so we're moving from Peter's letter to Paul. Um, so moving back a little bit towards the Gospels in the New Testament. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. It's kind of an introductory sermon as we start a new series. It's always helpful to kind of get our bearings uh, with some big picture items with regard to this letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Um, and so that will we'll give a little bit of introduction as well as kind of unpacking what's in these two verses, uh, even as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning. So uh, that being said, if you're able, would you uh, stand with me as we read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Pay careful attention. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we pray that as we study it today, uh, in a sense, that your spirit would give us understanding Lead us into all truth, uh, convict us of sin, and convince us that there is grace for us in Jesus Christ. And so in all things, Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, in this, your word, to see Jesus, the living word. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, you and I probably don't think too much about how we write letters anymore, in part because Many of us don't write letters anymore, uh, but if you were in the habit of writing letters at some period in your life, uh, my guess is that you probably didn't think too much about how you began the letter, kind of the introduction, the address of your letter. You maybe thought more about the body of the letter or how are you going to conclude and wrap up the letter? What were you going to say? What would you say at the end of the letter? Uh, but in ancient times, uh, the way people wrote letters was a little bit different. And so uh, sometimes an outline of what they were going to say would be included in the very greeting itself. And we have that in the beginning of Paul's letters as Paul uh, writes to different churches, as he writes to different individuals. And we have um, many, not all of his letters, we have most of his letters in the New Testament. Uh, there's a certain pattern, there's a certain theme to Paul's letters in the way that he begins these letters. It tells us what it is that he is about to uh, lay out within the letters. And so when we come to a letter like Ephesians, uh, it's worth, even though it might not be clear why, it's worth pausing to just look at the first two verses. How does Paul address this church in Ephesus? And so this morning what I want us to look at is a little bit of the background of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Uh, we'll, we'll look or we'll at least reference some of what we learn in the book of Acts uh, and what we know about Paul's ministry there. And then I kind of want to look at what does Paul say about himself and what does Paul say about believers? Um, and, and behind that, where does Paul find power, strength for his ministry as he writes this church? And then where do we find power? Where do, where do we find strength for our ministry, our lives as followers of Jesus and the way that Paul describes himself and the way that he describes us in these opening verses. So let's talk a little bit first about the background of Paul's ministry 
in Ephesus. I, I love it when, when things in the rest of the worship service kind of come together and fit nicely when we haven't planned it that way. So the fact that next week we'll be talking about uh, Ephesus with the children's challenge uh, fits nicely with the, the introduction today. Paul spent nearly three years, between two to three years in this city of Ephesus during what we typically call his third missionary journey. So if you look through the book of Acts, Paul's uh, mission work is kind of divided into four parts. You have three missionary journeys, and then you have his, his travel to Rome, where, he, uh, where the letter or where Acts ends with Paul in prison. So kind of four parts to Paul's mission. He ends up in the city of Ephesus uh, during his third missionary journey. You can read about this starting in Acts chapter 19. He's come kind of off of the mission trail. He's come back to a little bit of his home base, uh, a church in Antioch, and he's kind of rested, recouped there, and then he goes back out and he ends up in Ephesus. And here's a few things that are, I think are important for us to know about his time in Ephesus. Uh, first, a, couple, a few things about the city itself. In Paul's day, kind of during the Roman Empire, Ephesus was, um, I don't know if you'd call it a metropolis or, or how you would define it, but it was the fourth or fifth largest city in the Roman Empire. It's a port city, it's right on the water, and usually that attracted a pretty large population. Lots of merchants, lots of people coming in on ships, unloading their goods, lots of commerce, and so it becomes uh, quite a large city in Paul's day. The city itself part of the Roman Empire, pagan empire, pagan city, uh, characterized, as was a lot of the Roman Empire at that time, by pagan values. And so uh, it's, there's some archaeological evidence in the city that as, as men were coming in from the port, uh, that there were signs kind of carved in stone directing them to the brothel, that this was just a part of the society in Ephesus, very loose morality. Uh, so it's a big city, loose morality, kind of multicultural as people from all over are coming into Ephesus. There's a large temple to uh, the Roman goddess Artemis or Diana, she's sometimes called. Uh, there's a large temple there, and so there's this huge cult to the goddess Artemis. This furnished quite a bit of commerce in the city. Uh, you may remember when we were working through the book of Acts how uh, one of the biggest parts of commerce in the city was the silversmith industry. You had a whole guild of people making little shrines of the temple of Artemis, making little shrines of the goddess Artemis, and they would sell these as tokens of worship for the people who came to Ephesus. And people came from all over to offer worship to uh, Artemis there. Uh, another thing you need to know about the city is that it was characterized, it was Part of the culture was uh, dominated by what we might call magic. Now, when, when I say magic, I don't mean like I've got a hat and I'm going to reach in and pull a rabbit out or I've got some cards, I'm going to do some sleight of hand and guess which card you pull. Not, not that kind of magic. When we talk about magic in the first century in the Roman Empire, uh, we're talking about kind of dark spiritual forces at work. And so the, the culture was uh, permeated by this where people would pay money to kind of magicians, people engaging in witchcraft to help them deal with their ailments, 
Or maybe if they were poor, they would pay somebody to cast some sort of spell that would help them earn money. Uh, it, it was pervasive throughout the culture so that the things that people relied on for hope, for help, uh, for everyday life were often wrapped up in these kind of dark spiritual forces. Now that's going to be important for us later on as Paul, at the end of this letter, talks about the armor of God and, and our spiritual warfare as believers, not against flesh and blood, uh, but against these spiritual forces of darkness that lie behind many of the things that were going on in Ephesus. All of that to say, it was a spiritually dark uh, city. It was a culture pervaded by paganism uh, and these kind of occultic type practices as well as a loose morality. In many ways, not much different than what we find uh, in our own culture today. Paul was there for two to three years, but he made an incredible impact in the city through the preaching of the gospel. The Jews who were there largely rejected him. His ministry ended up being largely to Gentiles. And the, the message of grace and forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for us, that message of good news had such a deep impact on the city of Ephesus that the silversmith trade that we talked about earlier, people making trinkets to worship this uh, Roman goddess, the trade was economically impacted in a negative way because you had all these people coming to Christ, forsaking idolatrous worship. And you had even people who had been engaged in these kind of dark magic uh, forces burning all of their sorcery books because Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, had come to Ephesus and it was, it was shaking the foundations of the city. So much so... Uh, that there was a riot during Paul's time there. After two years of preaching the gospel and proclaiming Jesus and all of these conversions and this change happening on the ground level as Jesus was changing hearts and people's lives were being impacted by that, there's this riot that happens. The silversmiths whose pocketbooks are being impacted negatively by the impact of the gospel, they cause a riot uh, in kind of this open-air coliseum in Ephesus. So Paul, after his time there, about two to three years, he has to leave because of the danger to his life. And sometime later, probably during his Roman imprisonment, he writes this letter, probably around the year 62 AD. Uh, he's, when he's in Rome, he's under house arrest. He's got a little bit of freedom. People can come visit him. He can write letters and receive letters and so forth. And so he writes this letter back to this church, now probably this group of churches throughout this region uh, in and around Ephesus, he writes this letter back to them to encourage them, uh, to remind them who Jesus is, what he has done for them, and to call them to live in a manner consistent, to live in a manner that's worthy of that calling that they have in Jesus Christ. It's a different letter than many of his other letters. Uh, you, you know probably as well as I do that when you write a letter, you typically have a reason for it, right? You have an occasion for writing the letter. And when we talk about the letters in the New Testament, one of the ways we describe them is that they are occasional letters. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, for example, because there's this occasion 
false teaching has risen up in their, their midst. And Paul's writing this letter to help them remember the truth, to call them back. Same thing with 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There's a reason for his letter. And usually you can tell as you read through the letter, you can kind of see Paul's side of it. We don't have the other side of the letter, but you can see why he's writing. There's a problem, he states what the problem is, and then he tries to deal with it. Ephesians is a little bit different. It's a more general letter. There doesn't appear to be some specific occasion that prompted Paul to write this letter. It has a more general feel to it. And so in that sense, it's a lot like the letter to the Romans. It kind of gives you the broad sweep of God's redemptive work in Jesus and, and gives specifics about how we're to live in response to that. At the same time, though, uh, as we hinted at earlier, Paul clearly writes with an awareness of the specific issues that would have been at work in Ephesus, dealing with powers of darkness and spiritual forces at work in the area and, and helping them as believers to think about how to live in response to that. How does God call them to live and how does he equip them, particularly with the armor of God? So there are some issues that are specific uh, to the people in Ephesus, but overall it has kind of a general feel to the letter. So that's the background of Paul's letter to the Ephesians and his ministry there. Let's look at these two verses and think about what does Paul say about himself? What does Paul say about us? And how does that impact uh, the power, the strength that we have for Christian living, for ministry uh, in the name of Jesus? Notice what Paul says about himself. Uh, he identifies himself in kind of two ways. He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus and that this is according to or by the will of God. Remember, Paul's writing to believers who live in a city whose dominant culture is pagan, radically opposed in many ways to the message of the resurrection of Jesus. Where does he begin? Where does he go for confidence as he begins to write these words to them? He starts by highlighting his calling from Christ to serve as an apostle. What does this mean that, that Paul is an apostle? Uh, these, these are, there's lots of kind of Christian words in some of these opening verses that we often kind of glaze over and don't pause to say, well, what's he mean? What, you know, do we know what he's talking about here? An apostle is one of those. Uh, in the New Testament, you know, this word is kind of used in a pretty limited way. You've got the 12 disciples that Jesus chooses from among his broader group of disciples during his earthly ministry, and he sets them aside and he calls them apostles. Later, Paul is added to that number as Christ himself meets him on the road to Damascus and calls him to be uh, among the number of the apostles. An apostle is one who is sent. It's what the word literally means. It's, it's a sent one. And, and that means a couple of things uh, for us today. First, it means that Paul is entrusted with a message. Paul is entrusted with a message. Paul's office, or Paul's work as an apostle, that office of the apostle, overlaps with the way Paul describes himself in other ways. He talks about himself as a steward of the mysteries of God. That is to say, Paul views himself as a servant of Christ, called to faithfully dispense the treasures of the gospel 
to God's people, which means that the message Paul preached, the message Paul taught in Ephesus, the message that we have in the scriptures from Paul's hand, it's a message that comes not first from Paul, but from Jesus, uh, which means that Paul had neither the need nor the right to come up with his own message. He wasn't having to work from scratch, in other words, to try to figure out, what do I need to say when I show up in Ephesus? What's my message going to be? Jesus had given him a message. It had been supplied to him from Christ himself. Uh, you, you may know this, that a steward, somebody who's been given a stewardship over something, oftentimes we think about that in terms of like fundraising, but, but in, the, in ancient times it was used a little bit differently. Uh, a steward is one who's been given the responsibility over his master's treasures. If you can think about a, a person who is the head of the household, they have household goods, they have food stored up, uh, they have money stored up, and, and it's all for the benefit of their household. And maybe if they're wealthy enough, they've hired somebody to be responsible for making sure that their, their goods, their treasures are dispensed to the household, used for the benefit of those who belong to the household. And so as an apostle... Uh, that, that same idea is at work here. Paul's been given a message. He's been given good news that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises of redemption. That in his cross and in his resurrection, through faith in his name, there's forgiveness, there's righteousness, and there's hope because of what Jesus has done for us. And Paul has been given this message that all that is needed has been done in Jesus Christ on our behalf, and that we're called to believe it and then to live in the light of it. And in many ways, that kind of structures the whole letter of Ephesians. In the first three chapters, Paul uh, hammers home, he drives home again and again, this is what God has done for you in Christ. This is who Jesus is. This is what has been accomplished on your behalf by the Son of God who died and who rose again, who is now ascended into heaven. And then in the last three chapters, chapters four to six, he builds on that foundation and says, now in light of what Christ has done for you, in light of who you are in him, this is how you ought to live as a result, as a response. So Paul's been entrusted with a message. But with that message, he's also entrusted with authority. And, and that's really at the heart of what it means for Paul to be an apostle, that he has authority as a representative of Jesus Christ to speak on his behalf. If you were here during the adult Sunday school class, uh, Paul Tripp in the video we were watching talked about our being ambassadors uh, on behalf of Christ and wrapped up with that is the idea that we represent Jesus. Paul represented Jesus but in a way that carried more authority uh, because he is, he was an apostle. Paul was entrusted with authority as an ambassador of Jesus, which means that when Paul spoke, when Paul wrote out of that capacity as an, as an apostle, he did so with the full authority of God himself. So if you read, for example, Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, he commends them. He says, when I showed up among you and preached, 
along with his companions, when we, when we preach to you this message that had been given to us, uh, we commend you because you received it, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. Paul was given authority as a representative of Jesus. And so his words carry the very authority of Christ himself. And so Paul looks back to that calling as the place of confidence for his own words, that Jesus had called him to serve as his representative. But notice that confidence is always coupled with humility in Paul's life because he describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. No one is self-appointed as a servant of Jesus. It's always a calling according to God's will. Think about Paul's own life, his own experience, and how uh, this calling shows up according to God's will. What was Paul doing when Jesus called him to serve the church? Paul was persecuting the church. Paul was going with authority from Jewish religious leaders from town to town to town, seeking followers of the way, seeking those who were claiming that Jesus was the promised Messiah and that the Messiah had died on a Roman cross and that he'd been raised again from the dead. This was anathema to Paul the Pharisee. He couldn't, this was blasphemy. And out of zeal for God, he was on his way to arrest Christians, to bring them to trial so that many of them might be put to death. And just prior to that, you remember Paul had been the one standing by as Stephen, one of the deacons in the early church, had been stoned to death for his words about Christ. Paul stood by with approval. This is the Paul whom Jesus chooses to serve as his representative. Paul, Paul is always humbled by this fact that Jesus would choose to use him as an ambassador for the gospel. But in many ways, it's Paul's story. It's Paul's encounter with Christ. It's the radical transformation of Paul's life that provides so much credibility to his message. How else could this Pharisee who hated Jesus and who hated the people who loved Jesus, how else could this Pharisee now become the, the most profound teacher and preacher of Christian faith, the one who was now proclaiming the very thing that he hated before. It's because Paul was not seeking Jesus. He was opposing Jesus. <coughs> but God had a different plan. God had a sovereign plan. God's will was not to be undone and matched by Paul's will, but God's will would overcome Paul's rebellion against Jesus. For while Paul was not seeking Jesus, Jesus was seeking Paul, and even Paul could not resist sovereign grace and the calling of Christ. And that's the hinge of Paul's personal story, the will of God, God rescuing Paul, Jesus meeting Paul and knocking him to the ground and, and bringing him out of darkness and into light. You see, Paul served as an apostle, not because of anything in himself or any merit of his own, but because of God's grace. And he even highlights this in his letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy. He says, God, God chose me, the stubborn, rebellious one who'd been after Christians in an evil way. 
God chose me so that in me he might display his mercy. You see how Paul's credibility is wrapped up in this fact that he's called by grace. He didn't earn this position. He wasn't uh, given it because he was good enough. He was called in spite of all the things that disqualified him. He was called by grace. And so Paul confidently ministers, writes this letter with authority from Christ, but always with humility. He was not the source of this authority. Jesus is. And Jesus had chosen Paul and rescued him according to his gracious will. That has at least, I think, two two points of application for for us. Um, One is, consider how you read Paul's words. We've got 13, I think, yeah, 13 of, uh, of the books of the New Testament are letters from Paul, either to churches or to individuals. How do we treat those? How, how do we come to Paul or any other part of the New Testament or the whole Bible? How do we receive, uh, here just thinking about Paul, how do we receive Paul's words? Paul writes as one entrusted with an authoritative message from God, uh, which I think calls us to receive his words as carrying the same authority. Uh, we call this the inspiration of Scripture, that God chose men carried them along by the Holy Spirit so that as they wrote their words, their words are God's words. So God uses Paul, uses Paul's story. He uses Paul's gifts. He uses Paul's background, Paul's training, uh, even Paul's former rebellion as an enemy of the faith. He uses all of these things about Paul. He doesn't suddenly make Paul a robot or some sort of puppet. He shapes and uses Paul and and inspires Paul so much by his Holy Spirit that Paul's words are God's words, uh, which has implications for how we receive God's word. Do we receive it uh, with faith, with love, with humility, submitting our hearts and lives to it? uh, Or do we stand over it uh, rather than sitting underneath it in faith? The other point of application, I think, for us uh, in thinking about Paul, who he is, Uh, is to consider where we find our credibility for witness in the gospel. I think many of us probably have stories like Paul. You came from one thing to another. Uh, You came from being outside of Jesus to to belonging to Jesus. You came from unbelief to faith, darkness to light. Um, and, and, And there's things that come along with that, right? We've all got baggage. We've all got parts of our story that would seem to discredit who we are as as believers. And yet I think Paul sets a positive example for us in reminding us uh, that the way God uses us is not by finding all the perfect people and setting them aside and saying, okay, this is the A-team. The rest of you guys are over here. If you got problems, if you got a past, you got a story, you didn't do everything right, you guys are the B-team. That's not how he works. Uh, God takes the lowly. He takes the, the humble, he takes the broken, and, and he uses them to display his mercy. Paul is a wonderful display of God's mercy precisely because he needed it so desperately. And, and oftentimes I think we kind of buy into uh, the, the deception that the only way God can use us is if we have everything put together. If we get it all together, then God can use me. Then I'll have credibility because people will look at my life and there won't be anything that they can say against it. You know what? There's plenty that people could say against your life. But they can't say anything against the life of Jesus. 
And, and that's, that's our hope, that's our credibility. Christ for us and in us, which enables us, like Paul, to have this kind of humility uh, of acknowledging our sin and acknowledging our deep need for Christ. And so I think we, like as we talked about with Peter very often, we ought to find hope in the fact that Paul was not a perfect person, that he did not somehow live some unattainable standard of Christian living, but was a sinner uh, like each of us who trusted humbly upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And, and we are in that way exactly like Paul. So there's power for us in Christ's calling, even as there was for Paul. And we see that in the way Paul addresses the believers here in Ephesus. Paul was an apostle. He, laid, he was part of that foundational era of the church. Uh, and yet his story is very much parallel to our stories as we trust in Jesus for ourselves. So notice the way Paul calls, uh, addresses rather, the believers in this letter. Uh, two, three, three things to point out briefly. He calls them the saints who are in Ephesus. He calls them faithful in Christ Jesus. And he reminds them that they have grace and peace from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and the Son. If Paul needed power from Christ... Uh, so do we. So where do we find it? We find it in the same ways that Paul found it, through God's call on our lives. Uh, let's talk about these three titles or these three things kind of one after the other. Paul, Paul calls these believers saints. Again, like apostle, kind of another Christian word um, that we often don't stop to, to think about. Uh, what does it mean to be a saint? Uh, at root, the word just simply means a holy one. Those who are set apart. Sometimes we think that this applies just to kind of a select group of, of Christians, those who are really committed, you know, those who are really, really holy, and we call them saints. So you might say things like, you know, that woman is a saint because she demonstrates Christian character. She's like super patient with her husband. You know, she's a saint because she goes above and beyond. Um, but the New Testament doesn't really know any distinction like that among God's people, like Christians who are saints and Christians who are almost saints. That's not, not how that works. Uh, in, the, in the Bible, all believers are saints. So uh, maybe think about it this way. If Paul had written a letter to us, say if we had lived in the first century while Paul was still living and Paul had written a letter to us and he addressed the letter, uh, Paul, an apostle by the will of uh, apostle Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Filbert or who are at Filbert, uh, if we received that letter, none of us would have to look around and say, I wonder which of you he's got in mind. You know, who's this letter for? Who are the saints that are at Filbert? It's to all of us. It's to all of God's people. Saints, you can think about it this way, it's a given status that has implications for life. It's a given status. If you're a Christian, you've been set apart in Christ. You've been counted holy in Christ. You've been set apart in Christ. That is your status. And you have that status by virtue of grace, by virtue of your relationship with Jesus. Out of darkness, into light, a citizen of God's kingdom, no longer alienated, no longer orphaned, but now an adopted son or daughter in Christ. It's a done deal 
you've been given this status. You are a saint in Christ Jesus. You don't earn it. It's given to you as a gift. But that status, like any status we have, uh, impacts our lives and lays certain obligations on us. It's like uh, being a child. You don't earn that status. Uh, you're born into the family that you, that you have, that God gives you. You've been adopted into a family. You've been given this status. You didn't have to earn it or work for it. It is yours by, by virtue of belonging to the family. But that, that status places obligations on you, right? Uh, if, you, if you're a young child, uh, your parents may say things to you like, remember who you represent. Uh, you know, you belong to our family. Represent our family well or remember who you belong to, that, that type of thing. You're not in the world as an isolated individual. You belong to a people. Uh, you have a name that means something, and it means something in the world, and you're called to, to represent that name well, if you will. Or, or if you think about the obligations of marriage. You take marriage vows, you now have the status of being married. You don't have to earn it. You're not working towards it. Once you take those vows, that's it. You are a married individual, no longer an isolated person. You, you are now one with this other person, and that brings certain obligations, uh, certain duties with it as a result of that status. Saints carries the same thing, and you see that highlighted in the fact that Paul says, to the saints in Ephesus, living among this pagan culture, living in a place that was hostile to their status as saints, and yet Paul says, you're set apart for Jesus. You are light in the midst of darkness. Uh, you belong to Christ even in a world that rejects that and is often opposed to it. Lean into that identity, that status as God's holy people. Not only does he describe us as saints in here for them in Ephesus or you in York or Rock Hill or Clover or Lake Wiley or wherever the Lord has you. You are a saint there. Uh, you belong to Jesus. You're set apart for him wherever you are. But notice he describes you as faithful in Christ Jesus. It's like two locations, in Ephesus, in Christ Jesus. Paul is pointing up the vital reality, the life-giving reality that they have been united to Christ through faith, that they are in him. And what that means for them is that all that Jesus is and all that he has done is theirs. It belongs to them because they are located in Christ. If you look through Paul's letters, uh, even other places in the New Testament, his favorite way of describing himself and his favorite way of describing believers is this this idea, this phrase, you are in Christ. You're united to Jesus, which means all that he has done and all that he is counts for you. You need righteousness. Where do you find that? You don't find it through your own works. You find it in Christ Jesus. You need forgiveness of your sins. Where do you find that? You don't find it by constantly trying to pay for your sins and trying to make up for them by doing things better next time. You find forgiveness in Christ because he has paid the price for you at his cross. He has lived a life of righteousness for you and he gives that to you 
So that, as our gospel passage said earlier, um, he, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, this wonderful transaction. Our sins put on Jesus. He pays it in full, rises again in victory. His righteousness given to us as a gift of faith. We are in Christ Jesus, and if you are in Christ Jesus, God's love for the Son is his love for you. Never changing, never waxing nor waning, increasing or decreasing. He loves you perfectly because you are in his beloved Son. And that is good news. Finally, he reminds them, uh, and we'll, we'll close here, he reminds them of the benefits that they have of being in Christ Jesus. They have grace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have peace. As we think about the gospel, the work of Jesus for us, this is the word that captures so much of that, grace. A gift given, though not deserved. A gift secured for us by what Jesus has done in our place and freely given to the undeserving, those who have not merited it, nor earned it, the outcast, those on the fringe, those who were previously unwelcome, God says to you, come. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if you're bearing the burden of life in this broken world and you see that you are in need of forgiveness and mercy from God, there's grace for you from the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ because of all that Jesus has done in our place. And the result of that grace is peace. Um, objective peace. Christ has ended the battle between us and God through his cross and his resurrection and even the subjective feeling, comfort and peace that comes from knowing that the Father's love is perfect for you in Christ Jesus. As we consider our own lives, uh, where we receive strength and power to live for the Lord Jesus in all of life, Paul gives us this reminder. It comes from who you already are in Christ as a result of his work on your behalf, which we receive through faith. And as we come to Jesus in faith, he gives us again and again grace upon grace and peace that passes all comprehension. May we remember who we are, and may we go forth and live in the light of that. Would you pray with me?